Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Seattle Seahawks icon Jim Zorn. Here we go! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program... We welcome one of Seattle's favorites. He was a 12-year NFL veteran. He was an All-Pro in 1978, as well as coaching in the NFL for the better part of 18 years. He's the second man ever elected into the Seahawks Ring of Honor. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Zorn. Jimmy, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, thanks for having me. Very All right, I got something for you. Washington Post article, 1980. You learned how to play the viola so you could play with huh. the Seattle Symphony. I, I got a whole list of things for you. you get, you're an amateur yeah. boxer. So you, when you, you moonlighted as a speed that, skater. Here's, here, here, here's what happened. I happened to be on a local television show, and I was messing around. My wife had played the viola in high school, and she still had hers. And I'm left-handed, so... I thought I'd be clever, and I turned it upside down, and I kind of shoved it in in my rib cage, and I started playing notes, and I could play a couple songs, but but just just a couple songs. I mean, I just played like "Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley" and stuff like that. Nothing spectacular, but uh, the symphony got word of that. And they wanted me to come on a subscription night and actually play. So I asked a nine-year-old young man uh, who actually played a quarter bass fiddle, a quarter bass uh, instrument, and we played three songs in front of the Seattle. It was a subscription night, the Seattle Symphony. We ended up playing... uh, Beethoven's Ninth, and we played, oh, I think Mary Had a Little Lamb or something like that, and we got a standing ovation. So that, you know, you're digging way into uh, deeper things that uh, uh, were fun, but uh, the talent, the skill level uh, was not there. We wore tuxedo T-shirts and had a great time. Well, you were doing that on the side while you were you were, you were uh... – Honing your craft in the amateur boxing world, and, and you were speed skating. You were moonlighting. Moonlighting was your yeah, so, speed skating yeah. was your. You there was no threat. The there was no side. threat of be, becoming a symphony uh, artist. All right, you're born in Whittier, California, Gar High School. Uh, yep. You played it all. You played it all: hoops, football, baseball, track. I want to. I want to glimpse into Jim Zorn's childhood. What was Jim as a little kid? Well, I I uh, have two sisters, and I'm in the middle. My dad worked for General Motors in Southgate. He helped uh, build the they they built the Pontiac there, and uh, he was a he you know he was very committed to going to work, coming home, going to work, coming home. And for for my whole uh, kind of upbringing, I had to do sports on my own. If I wanted to play sports, great. But there was nothing organized. I played out in the street. I played at the schools. Uh, you know, just any, you know, we, we had a, at that time, you can kind of run the neighborhood. 
which is what we did. And we used to get games going uh, and just do all kinds of stuff. So uh, when I got into high school, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to pl- if I wanted to uh, go out for cross country. And I was kind of small and, sh- you know, I felt like I was not a not. I mean, football wasn't even on my mind. And it was the first organized sport, really, I, I ever I ever did. And I was not very good. And I played basketball my freshman year uh, and I didn't do very well. I played baseball my freshman year, didn't do very well. And so uh, my second year, my sophomore year in high school, I was 15 years old. That same friend said, hey, let's go out for football. And I said, okay. And I was going to be a wide receiver and defensive back. And he, and the coach came up after the second or third practice and said, hey, uh, we may get a quarterback that comes down on from varsity to this uh, sophomore team, but I, I've seen you throw. Why don't you uh, be our quarterback until we can get a guy down from varsity? And I said, okay. And that kind of started me out. And what I loved about it at first was I got to touch the ball every single play. And I kind of got to be in charge. I got to, you know, call the signals, call the play. And, uh, you know, I just kept, uh, so I got, uh, you know, I kind of got the hang of it, but I knew nothing about football at that particular time. And I really didn't know much about other sports either. I just, uh, did, you know, I just participated in, participated in them, uh, in the middle of the street or at a park or at, at a school, whenever anybody wanted to do something, I, I wasn't necessarily, uh, skilled at anything. I just enjoyed the play really. And, and this is where doing my research for, for this program tonight, um, this is where the Jim, the Jim Zorn story starts for me. And, and I, and, and we're both well aware that the guy I'm about to mention, he was a teammate of mine. He's, he's a Seattle guy like yourself and myself, uh, Jamie Moyer. Uh, yeah. he seemed like he was that guy that he, he, as a kid coming up, they always telling him, Oh, you're this, you're that, you're that. Jimmy Moyer ended up playing 25 years in the big leagues, became the oldest pitcher ever to, to win a game, I believe, at 50 years old. Uh, good family friend of mine. But I saw a little, a lot of similarities with Jim Zorn and Jamie Moyer. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. Well, but, there is, because he's left-handed, you know. He's Well, you guys are a little off to begin with, just for being left-handed. <laughs> we, we all know that. We all know yeah. that. But you start yeah. your senior year uh, at quarter. That's the first time you're starting on varsity. Uh, and you go right. to Cerritos. You go to Cerritos JC, and take it from there for me. How did how did the junior college so, experience uh, quarterbacking go for you? Yeah. So my my uh, senior year in high school, I I was uh, I I got I got better because we we had a new coach. His name was Pete Nicholas, and he really taught me uh, some quarterback skills that I had never learned before. So I was all league and I was the MVP of the team, blah, blah, blah. But, but I didn't have any scholarship opportunity. So uh, my mom said, well, it's time to get a job. And I said, well, let me go to school 
to play football for at least, you know, let me extend my football career at least a couple more years. That's why I went to uh, Cerritos, which was a local uh, junior college in my area. And I could, you know, I live at home and, and uh, play football basically. So I went to school full time and then uh, got into their program and I became the starter, but halfway through that, uh, no, I didn't become the starter my fresh my freshman year there, but I got to play. Uh, and then my sophomore year, my second year at Cerritos Junior College, I got to be the starter. And halfway through, uh, the coach there decided that I didn't have the leadership qualities that he was looking for in his quarterback. Uh, it's probably because we lost a couple, you know, we lost a few games. So he wanted to make a QB change and he did. So the only scholarship that I got was a half, I got a half scholarship to go to Cal Poly Pomona. And that was, uh, in the early seventies. And so I went to Cal Poly Pomona and I lived at home. I drove my Volkswagen to Cal Poly every day. And uh, my junior year, I led the nation in total offense. And I, you know, I was, uh, I just got it. I, I ran, I scrambled, and I threw the ball. Uh, I had a receiver that was over a thousand yard receiver. And I, I gained in, uh, I gained a thousand yards rushing um, in the years that I, that I played at Cal Poly. So, um, it was a lot of fun and I got, you know, I was, I was pretty good in my junior year and then got better even in my senior year and, uh, had an opportunity to play in the NFL from there. 1975, um, uh, you signed with the Dallas Cowboys, uh, undrafted free agent. Yeah. And, and you go to camp and, and I believe that's the time of, uh, Tom Landry, of uh, Roger yeah. Staubach and, the correlation I make is spring training uh, in the big leagues. You go to spring training. There's there's guys that you know who the guys are. Then there's that second tier. Then there's some guys that are on the bubble. They could make it. They might not make it. Late in that first camp for you, uh, you got released. Uh, tell me the feelings you had of that first camp, what it was like for you going in undrafted, and then finally in the end uh, not making the cut. Uh, what was that experience like? Because I well, think it's it's similar to what a lot of guys go through in the MLB yeah. side. Yeah. Well, uh, before I before I I uh, got there, I was I was um, I guess I I would say one of the reasons I got there is because I did a lot of things. Uh, I started getting different kinds of sports inside of me to help me. Uh, become a better football player. Like I was on the badminton team at Cal Poly Pomona and I speed skated. I, I, I was a speed skater indoor. I worked at an ice skating rink and I surfed, you know, up and down the beaches. And uh, so I was doing a lot of things. I even threw the javelin in trap. I was going to say, I, I saw that you threw the javelin. All right. I'm sorry. Continue. Yeah, just that, that. And that was my senior year, but you're right. Uh, we had think about this, Brett. I had we had 16 rounds in the National Football League in 1975, and I was not I wasn't drafted at all. So 
Uh, I did have uh, multiple contracts, and I was very intrigued about Tom Landry and his kind of his legacy in Dallas. I liked Roger Sadek, so I signed with them. And uh, you you asked me about training camp. It was brutal. Uh, it's nothing like today uh, in training camp. We were there uh, at training camp for uh, we we had training camp for six weeks. And the first three weeks, we had 120 players, and the veterans hadn't even shown up yet. And they cut everybody down to 80, about 80 players, and then the veterans came in. And at that time, uh, if you look back at the, the history, the league only kept 43 players. There was no practice squad. They didn't have really a defined injured reserve list. So yet 43 players could make it. And uh, I got to play, I got to play in one of the preseason games. And uh, I really, uh, I mean, I, you know, everybody wants to make the team. I certainly did, but I, uh, and I did, uh, you know, you were saying I, I got released at the end. I actually made the football team and that was the year they had drafted uh, Randy White in the first round do you remember a guy named Hollywood Henderson? Yes. Uh, Hollywood was that, that was in that class. And that group just so happened, uh, they called, they called that group of rookies. There were 12 rookies and they called them the dirty dozen. And I was the dirty 13th and made the team. But that first week, uh, we were getting ready for the Rams and, uh, no, we were getting ready f- not for the Rams. It was I uh, can't remember who the first game was actually, but as we were getting ready on that Friday of the first game, uh, our we had a fullback. His name was Scott Laidlaw, and he was from Stanford. He had a bit of a knee injury, but not enough to put him on any any kind of injured reserve. So they had to get another back, and they traded for Preston. Uh, Preston Pearson, Pearson coming from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Well, when Preston came in, that made it 44. They had to let a guy go. So they stayed with two QBs. That's how I got cut after I made the team. And uh, I, I stayed around. They tried to hide me out and get me a job and keep me around because if Roger got hurt, I would have been the next guy to come in. But uh, Roger was a very durable player. And then the Rams – had called me, and Chuck Knox was the head coach there. James Harris was the starter at quarterback. Ron Jaworski was the backup, and I went there as the number three guy, but I never saw the field. They did not uh, – they just kind of let me practice, and I didn't, even, I didn't even dress out. So they stayed with their two QBs as well, and none of them ever got injured. So then uh, – at the end of the season, during the playoffs, this team from Seattle called the Seattle Seahawks uh, were forming, and they called and wanted me to come up and check out the the area. And I I, I made sure. I mean, I was asking, "Hey, are you guys an NFL team? I mean, who do you play?" Because <laughs> I'd never heard of the Seahawks before. It was an it was an expansion team, right? And they, I said, "Do you play the Raiders?" Yes. Do you play the Dallas Cowboys? Yes. You know, will you play the Pittsburgh Steelers? Yes. 
said, okay, I'll come out. I'll come and check it out. And I signed, and then, you know, I got to start and play. That's how I got, that's how I got released from Dallas and uh, came to Seattle. But those early training camps were, were br- brutal. They were six weeks long. Now they're 20, 21 or 22 days. And, uh, man, and we had six preseason games uh, in uh, Dallas or in the National Football League in 1975. And then they started uh, changing those things after uh, after I got into the league, back into the league in '76. Yeah, and and man, those trade. I mean, I could, I couldn't imagine the football. And, and you've got 16 games on the schedule, but six preseason games. I mean, I remember just going through spring training, and and it's 30 games. And as you get to be a veteran, you know, you don't have to play all of them. But it seems you're there right. three weeks, or and those. Spring training gets long in, in the baseball arena because then you got 162, and if you're good, you got the postseason. But uh, it, yeah. it seems like as we, you know, evolve and, and and time goes on, people figure out better ways, uh, more efficient ways to, to take care of the athletes. Uh, I, you know, yeah. I look at the Major League Baseball today and and uh, the facilities and just man down to the to the yeah. nutrition and how everybody's taken care of. And they do it even at the minor league level. I mean, the yeah, minor the league level when I was coming up, Jimmy was, uh, was pretty tough, but today it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd say the same thing getting... in the NFL, Brett, Brett, did you, um, did you have, you know, we had not only on the field, uh, uh real physical practices, but, uh, but we also had, extensive classroom meetings because we had, you know, there's a lot to learn uh, when you, when you're putting a football program together. And if you're uh, a quarterback, uh, you know, there's, there's just added time to learn and study and uh, get everything down that you need to. Do you do the same? Are there classroom sessions in major league baseball? No, you know, there's a lot more uh, teaching at the minor league level, but uh, in, at the big league level, no, it, it's pretty much your red, you know, you get there, the, the position players check in probably 10 days before game start pitchers come a little bit earlier and there's basic stuff you go over. You might have a hitters meeting uh, once a week with the hitting coach and go over this and that, but no, there, as far as chalkboard talks, stuff like that. Nah, nothing like that goes on. It's more of, okay, today's physicals, tomorrow the union's coming in, then then they're going to yeah. give you the, you know, the, the FBI is going to come in and put on a pro. Now, now we've got to do, uh, uh, take your baseball card picture. So our time is more filled up with that type of stuff other than yeah. actual classroom type, type activities. Once the game starts, it, it's pretty basic. You get there at eight if you're playing, you know, and as a veteran player, you know if you're playing. Uh, yep. If you're not playing, you, you you go through all your workouts, and, and you're usually out of there by game time, which is one in the afternoon. So the baseball side, yeah. they, they treat you pretty well. Now, as a rookie, not so much. I, I remember my first year uh, under Lou Pinella. He made me dress, and at the at the time, I think you remember, uh, he made me dress for every game 
home road, whether I was playing, whether I wasn't playing, I'd have to sit there and I'd come home every night at five or six in the evening. And I, you know, I see the younger guy or the, the veteran players at the time, you know, oh. Griffey Jr. and Buner making fun of me. Hey kid, you going to another game? As they, you know, they got their golf clubs and they're, and they're jumping into their car. But I guess that's kind of, yeah. that's kind of the way it is. You gotta, you gotta earn yeah. your stripes and you, and you gotta put your time in and once you prove it, uh, they treat you pretty good. As you know, they treat you pretty good uh economically in all the sports right now yeah um yeah were you in the club were you able to go into the clubhouse and you got everything i mean you were uh because uh, in, in i mean even when i was with the dallas cowboys uh you know uh, we did uh tom did some interesting things because he did not allow rookies to have that dallas star on their helmets until you made the team and i can still remember uh, you had to have it on during the game, right? All the preseason games, but they would take it back off to go back to practice. So you almost had to earn things. Uh, and, you know, I was always bringing ice for uh, the, you know, uh, Roger would say, yeah. Hey, can you bring, would you bring me some ice tonight? Well, yes, I certainly will. Mr. Staubach. I, I'll, I'll do that, you know. Without, without a doubt, there was definitely that in my time where I'd get on the bus and, and man, if I even got past, you know, the midway mark in that bus, it's rookie, <laughs> what are you doing? Get to the front. You know, I need, hey, go get this for me. Go get that. And, you know, I did right. it with a wry smile because I would laugh about it, uh, but that was part of it, you know. When I was in the game, when I was a veteran, uh, it was a little more politically correct, and, and you couldn't do it as much. Uh, yeah, the, the the rookies would still come up, and they'd have to wear a dress on a on a road trip, and and you know you, they were in charge of this, that, and the other. A lot, a lot of there's a lot of that that goes on in baseball with the pitching staffs and the young pitchers out yeah. in the bullpen. You know they've got to yeah. they got to take care of the snacks and the seeds and the Gatorades for for all the veteran yeah. pitchers and and that's kind of something that you just do. Uh, nowadays though, it's it's kind of the young guys kind of run the show and I see it. There's not as much of that um, uh, rookie sit down and shut up and you speak when you're spoken to. It's more of a yeah. no when you when you're a rookie they have as much say as a vet it's kind of a different a different world now i think different in in all sports uh but definitely baseball has changed in that capacity i, I kind of like what you were saying about landry saying you, you don't wear the star until you earn the star i think we need a lot more of that not, not only in sports but in our society today you know, you give yeah. you give a sixteen year old a, a Mercedes for a sixteenth birthday. Where's there to go from there? So uh, I, I kind of <laughs> like the I kind of like that old school mentality of hey, you'll you'll put yeah. this Dallas Cowboys star on when you good and earn it. All right, and every day, and every day, uh, you know, it was you had to be really on your game because you could get cut in 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 our, you know, you today uh, you can get cut, uh, but. Uh, they, in my day, uh, if they saw potential in you, you could stay, you know, you could stay and, and you could get developed, right? There was an expectation that you were going to get developed, but in today's game, and I don't know if this is in baseball as well, there's, you know, there, you can drop back down to minor leagues and then come back up. But in, in our, in the NFL, there's not much else to go to below the NFL when it comes to football. So if you don't make it, 
you you fight to be ready in case somebody calls your agent and wants you. But there's a lot of guys that are really good athletes that are out there that uh, don't have an opportunity to play. They can't get that shot anymore uh, because those things, ha- the shot happens fast in, in a lot of leagues. And I don't know if that's true in baseball. Uh, it's, it, it's true, but yeah, it, baseball is unique in that capacity where, you know, the, the, the NFL, your training grounds for the NFL is, is the, at the collegiate level. Whereas, right. you know, and, and when you're done college, college football, they expect you to be ready for the big time baseball, a little different. I think, I, I think the hitters at, at the high school and college level that get drafted, they're not ready for the major leagues. Now, maybe once once in a, in a great while, you'll have a, a phenom come along that can handle it, but that's very rare. You need to go through that, that year or two of the minor leagues. Even the most elite kids coming out of college usually need a year or two just to hone their skills and get yeah. to a point where they're ready for major league pitching. I think that's the only thing in sports that's a little different at all the major sports. Uh, it's just that, that – grasping how to be a major league hitter. There's something to it. You know, we all in the minor leagues think we're ready for it. Give it to me. And then you get it and you go, okay, I see what they're talking about. It's a little bit different at the major league level versus the minor league level. I think speed's a factor in all the sports, you know, from say a collegiate level, the speed on the field versus the NFL, that's a huge jump. The same is true in baseball. You go to double A, triple A, Man, there's a lot of really good professional players there, but once you get to the big league level, the speed is the biggest factor, and it and it's huh. just it, for a ground ball to short. Where in the minor leagues, you might beat it out by a, by a half a step. In the big leagues, you might be out by a half a step, and I saw that as the <laughs> biggest challenge for me when I was getting to the big leagues. So 1976, you go to Seattle, and this is where the the story's so cool for me. I mean, it's from. Uh, organized football your sophomore year to Cerritos JC to getting benched right. for not having the leadership skills to Cal Poly Pomona uh, to get to getting you know to going to the Dallas Cowboys not making it there next thing you know it's 1976 you're getting 3,000 total yards uh, you're the offensive rookie of the year in the NFL I, I believe at least the AFC 76, yeah, 77, yeah. and 78. It was, it, it was actually the NFC. We were in the NFC at that time. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. the NFC. First, I'm sorry, the NFC. First year was the NFC, and the second year was the AFC. And but then you the have third consecutive... year, we ended up in the NFC. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no no problem. Three years in a row, you accumulate more than 3,000 yards. 1978, yeah. you're an all-pro. Uh, it seems like it just that's why I was, you know, and, and we don't know each other very much. Obviously, I know Jamie Moyer very well, but I was just reading and doing my research, and you know, I'm thinking this is sounding kind of Jamie Moyer to me. Like, I, I couldn't imagine what were you thinking? Uh, and, and I hate to go back, but that that sophomore year at Cerritos, uh, when when that coach sat you down and said, "Jim, I don't I don't think you're the right guy at the at the helm for our program." Are you thinking NFL at that time? I'm going to be an NFL quarterback, and then fast forward three or four years later, uh, you're starting in the NFL. Yeah, no, I, I had no, I had no dream of that. I just thought I was going to try to finish out my, uh, I didn't agree with him. I felt like he should have just told me, Hey, I just want to start a different guy. You know, we've, we've lost a couple games. 
it can't be all you, you know, and it sort of rationalized it in my brain. Uh, and I, I, uh, it just, it, you know, those kinds of things, I didn't have any future idea that I, I didn't think he was killing me on, on the idea or the dream that I had, cause I didn't really have that dream. So, um, but you know, I, I was a, uh, you know, I was, I enjoyed being on the team and I worked hard to be on that team and to be the starter. So, uh, when I got the half scholarship at Cal Poly Pomona, um, I was going to try to work that into becoming a full scholarship player. And, um, and I did, uh, I'll never forget, you know, I didn't have, I, I probably didn't have a lot of confidence, uh, going in there. Uh, and, we played our first game against Fresno State uh, in uh, gosh, this was my junior year, and it was my very first game at Cal Poly Pomona, and we beat Fresno State, and that was supposed to be their warm-up game, you know, because we were just a Division II NCAA Division II school, and so that was their warm-up game because they were D1, and we ended up beating them, and I'll never forget our head coach sprinted out on the field because we were out there taking I was taking knees at the end and he he said you know you are a great football player you are going to be a great football player in uh in college and you know I'd never had anybody tell me that right to my face and he was kind of emotional about it and I uh, you know, I took it into heart. I mean, I just did everything I could to get better and better uh, each, you know, every single day I was there and uh, really enjoyed it. But it was from that comment, uh, that kind of uh, a positive comment. Uh, and, you know, I, I just took it and believed it. And I think that's what gave me the opportunities. I think from there, I started dreaming, but it wasn't until NFL scouts started showing up and uh, working me out and um, that I thought I could have the opportunity. And then it wasn't until, you know, when I got the opportunity with the Cowboys, I wanted to make sure that they couldn't cut me for not being in very good shape, for not, you know, understanding what you know, what my role was there. So I tried to do everything I, I tried to do everything I could to eliminate some of those things that they could easily cut a player for not being physically ready, you know, not caring about the, you know, the details of, of uh, your practice or your, your meetings or anything like that. And that, all those things helped me make it in the national football league, helped me become a starter, you know, and help me uh, lead better. Really? Well, there's few guys in sports, and, and this comes to mind. You tell me if you, you think it's a, it's a fair depiction. Uh, it seems like Jim Zorn and, and Steve Largent, you're, you're kind of joined at the hip. always will be. I know you're going on a trip together. I, I know you're still good friends to this day. But it seems like, especially in Seattle, that connection, uh, that will always be there. You know, And I think, I think of the baseball side, and I'm thinking, what was the best – you know, the combo that kind of kind of depicts what Zorn and Larger were. And for me, I came up with Trammell and Whitaker. And it just seems huh. like those guys go together. You know, they're still buddies. 
yeah, I got a chance to. I didn't play with with Trammel, but he was a coach of mine when when I had a stop yeah. in, in San Diego during my career. Uh, I got to meet Lou Whitaker uh, at the Hall of Fame a few years ago. Really good guy. But I, I just kind of think of Jim Zorn, Steve Largent, Trammel Whitaker. It's it's kind of the Trammel Whitaker Whitaker version what, of the like, NFL. What made Does, them does a, that make what sense? Made them a duo. How do you become a duo in Major League Baseball? Um, I don't know. They were a double play combination. They came up together in the minor leagues okay. and played together for the majority of their career. But it just seems, you know, and there's so yeah. many players in, in in the NFL and in the uh, in Major League Baseball that that are teammates for a long time. But I don't know. It just seems that 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 went together. And how was that relationship at, at first? In I'm assuming you love it. I mean, you're going on vacation with him in the next couple of days. Yeah, I assume yeah, you, got, no, you guys he, like a, that, like being being hooked together. Yeah, we do. And you know, we uh, well, you know, he was drafted by the Houston Oilers, not even the Seattle Seahawks. And then he got cut when I was. Uh, he had come out of the University of Tulsa, and my our coach, our uh, my quarterback coach was Jerry Rome. And Jerry Rome was his college coach. So the Seattle Seahawks hired Jerry Rome to come here. And Steve got drafted by the Houston Oilers. Well, when they cut him, Jerry said, we got to get him. And uh, we ended up, uh, this was after training camp. We were in, I think it was our fourth or fifth preseason game. And I'll never forget, we were already out at practice and here, and, and I've heard so much about Steve Largent because of Jerry and he comes out and he's not that tall and he's not that fast. And Jerry puts him right in the huddle. The very, I mean, we're in a team drill. He makes him run a couple laps and he puts him right in the team huddle. And he said, call the play. And I said, well, you know, this is a play where the receivers have to adjust their pass routes based on the coverage. And I told Jerry, he said, just call the play. He knows what's going on. So I called it. And, uh, of course, they made the, he made the adjustment. I threw him the ball, and he dropped the pass. Now, he says he dropped two balls that day. I only remember that ball. But it was the very first pass I threw to him, he dropped. And, uh, you know, I thought, okay, Jerry, you think this guy is all that? You know, he's just okay. And then we got into a game. And I threw a ball, I scrambled, and I threw a, it, he took off like a go route, and I threw the ball, and I thought, oh, I overthrew him. And he went out and got it and dove, just outstretched prone about two or three feet off the ground and caught the ball. And I thought, man, this, is, this, guy's, gonna, this guy's unbelievable. And I would say uh, from then on, uh, we roomed together. We used to... Uh, uh, not only practice, you know, we practiced hard, but we used to stay out after practice and sometimes before practice and just work on the details of a, of a route and the depth and a, a break, you know, a, a different kind of break versus press man and a different kind of break versus a guy that's playing a little softer inside or outside. And we just would talk about those things. So the connection uh, kept getting better and better as we, as we went along. And, uh, and then we saw each other off the field as well. We enjoyed 
uh, being around each other. And, and, you know, you know, families are close uh, when you get on a team and our wives are, we're close and are close and our kids have grown up together. We vacation together and uh, done a lot of things in, in the years following uh, getting to know him as a football player. And when you mentioned what, you know, what, why are, why is Trammell and Whitaker down? Well, I had a, I had a partner in Seattle or I'm sorry, in Cincinnati, my time there in the mid nineties, his name was Barry Larkin. He went on to the hall of fame and he was my shortstop. And okay. usually, usually in baseball, shortstops and second baseman, they, they've got, they were working together all the time. It's like a pitcher catcher in baseball, yeah. just kind of knowing where you are. And we had a weird thing that we developed and it was not only a trust, uh, it, it enabled me to play my best and it, it enabled me to take chances, come wheel and dive for a play, take a risk that I normally wouldn't take because I trusted my partner at shortstop so huh. much, Larkin. I knew I knew he was going to be there. I knew if I made a bad throw, he was going to make it look like a good throw with his footwork. Yeah. So it kind of it kind of enabled me to play uh, as aggressive as I wanted to, and it was outstanding. And the fact that I was so, uh, you know, he had my trust so much, I usually didn't make any mistakes with him because it's almost like it was a safety. Like he's got me covered, so I can just freewheel it here. And more yeah. times than not, I threw a strike. I played with other partners at shortstop that I knew if I didn't put it right on the bag, something something bad might happen. And that's a horrible huh. feeling to have. My question to you is, is there that type of camaraderie, say with you and Steve, from a quarterback to, to a wide receiver that, you know, I know if I throw this ball here, he's going to catch this ball. And I just know it. Whereas maybe somebody else on the team, it's not as trustworthy. Do you have that type of uh, – type of thing yeah that, that, yeah. I, that's always think, interested me yeah, on the NFL no, it, it really uh it does make a difference so i would say yes to that question and uh i think uh largent kind of proved it i you know there was a couple games he was always battling uh he was, we always battled uh the raiders and lester hayes was kind of his nemesis that was his his challenge because lester who was a corner uh, for the Raiders and a, and a tremendous corner. He played press man almost all the time. In fact, he was more comfortable playing press than any other type. He could not play zone as well as he could play uh, man coverage. And Steve uh, would just kind of conjure up moves to try to get off the ball. And, uh, you know, one thing that, that happened, I, I did trust him. And I uh, he, he ran a goal route, and he wasn't that bad. Lester had him. But I kept the ball inbounds up the field, and he had jumped over Lester, uh, inside of Lester to stay in bounds, and on his shoulders uh, went over him and caught the football. You can see it. There's a highlight of it, and he comes back down on his shoulders inbounds for a touchdown. But that's what you're talking about is those kinds of trust trust issues. I still had to throw the ball to, you know, whatever the the coverage in football. You know, it's hard. We had a lot of plays designed and and talked through, uh, but if Largent was doubled or taken out, you know, I still had to throw the ball somewhere else. I wouldn't just try to jam it in there because uh, she's my best friend or or gosh, he's he's a tremendous player. Uh, you can't do that. But when you have the play, uh, you do trust that 
because you've worked at it so much, the communication has been so good that you can just let the ball go. And, um, you know, he made me look good in, in a lot of situations because sometimes I couldn't step up to throw the, the perfect pass. I, I got it there, but it was low, or I got it there and it was a little high. And, uh, you know, I just barely got would get him off. And you see that happen today in games. And the, the best players uh, do work together with their, with their group. And Largent was certainly uh, one of the one of the better players. He's in the Hall of Fame as well. You know, you're talking about Larkin. He's in the Hall of Fame, uh, and Steve's in the Hall of Fame because of that. Just because of uh, his precision and his his work ethic, and you know his production on the field. A lot of success in Seattle. Um... In mid-1983, you get replaced by David Craig. And, and recently on the Boone podcast, I uh, had Matt Hasselbeck and Rick Meyer and Rodney Pete. And, uh, oh, good. I, I, I want to ask Jim Zorn. These were all starting quarterbacks, but at some point in their career uh, became backup quarterbacks. And explain to me the difference between being the guy in you know 16 games a year and then all of a sudden – you got the headphones on. How big of a challenge is that for you? And yeah. did you? Ta- it was the end of your career, so did you take it as a, you know, I'm going to mentor this new guy as, as well as I can and, and, and give him a little bit of my knowledge and my experience. How did you go into that backup role? Yeah, I, that find, was, it, I find it really interesting. Super hard for me because I'd always been the starter. And, you know, uh, when you, you know this, when you're the starter, you have – you have different things on your mind as you're preparing for a game. And, uh, you know, you're not, you're not trying to help uh, new players coming in that much. You know, you just, you have it in you that you're going to try to win a championship. And, and there's things that you have to do that uh, uh, you just take care of. So being a backup, it was actually more embarrassing to be a backup or to, you know, get taken off of that starting unit because I always thought that's my position. But, uh, Brad, I'll tell you, it uh, did a couple of things for me. One, it uh, caused me to uh, really understand what it was to be on a team and say, which I had been saying, that, you know, team, team wins, right? And uh, if we're going to be a real team here, how am I, I going to only be a teammate if I can only, if I only start. So, um, you know, as a backup, uh, I tried to help Dave as much as I could and still be ready in case I, I could go back in and still perform. So there's still that, uh, you know, there's still that drive in me to, to get myself ready. The, the, the hurt, if you will, the hardest part was not being able to have the same kind of play uh, practice plays as I had before because you had to get the starter ready. So I'd get, you know, I'd get to hand off the ball. I'd get two plays and gosh, that just drove me, you know, just drove me wild. You know, well, you don't trust me to, th- and they would be run plays. So they, I wouldn't even get to throw. So all the throws that I was making, I was making on my own after practice or whatever. And, you know, even Steve, had to get ready with Dave to start. So all those things felt uh, made, made it kind of uh, 
an empty feeling. But I, I tried the best I could to be to help and to be as team oriented as I possibly could. Um, but but it really was difficult. And then um, I went on, you know. So I backed Dave up for a year and a half, and and I I still got to play. I I, I played some. But, you know, I, I kind of gave everything I had there. And then I got released and went to the Green Bay Packers. But in those, you know, in that year and a half, I had to back up. Uh, that, that was difficult because I knew I could, you know, I mean, nothing, nothing happened to me uh, except I, well, I did get a pretty severe injury in my ankle and I wasn't as, as uh, sudden as I had been because of an ankle injury that I had in 1981 and we had some coaching changes you know chuck uh and chuck's in the ring of honor he's a he's a really great football coach and uh chuck wanted a guy that would be a pocket passer not a scrambler because you know i scrambled and i got out of i got out of trouble and that was something that was hard for him to predict you know what was going to happen on a scramble and uh, he wanted guys that were more pocket oriented. And so uh, part of that was the change that he made in 1984. Uh, midway, actually, you're right, it, midway through the 83 season. Go to the Packers. Uh, you spend a year in the CFL. And you finish up with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Um and, and you started coaching right away. Uh, as as those last few years uh, playing football for you, did you have? Did you think you know I want to go into coaching here? And did you start laying the groundwork then, or or was it something that at the end you just kind of said, "Nope, I want to coach." Oh, I think it was about four or five years after I was playing that I decided uh, that would be really uh, an interest of mine and something that I think I can do because I. I really liked the detail of it. I liked the encouragement of it, you know, encouraging others to be, uh, you know, good player, a great player. And um, I kind of felt like I knew the mechanic. And really, uh, for me, it was about efficiency, right? It was about not wasting motion. It was about learning, you know, learning um, the game itself. But I tell you, when I got into it, uh, I went and asked Chuck Knox if he would hire me on his staff. This was after I was done playing in 87. And he said, no. He said, you, you will benefit more of being on our staff than we'll benefit of you being on our staff. Man, I was mad. And uh, he said, <laughs> I, my suggestion is you go and try to coach at the highest level you can and, uh, you know, uh, see if you like it. I don't want to, he said, I don't want to be your guinea pig, right? I don't want to be your, your lab. Uh, we need, we need coaches that are seasoned that are going to, that are going to do it. So, um, uh, coach, uh, that actually coached with Don James at the university of Washington, his name was Skip Hall. He was at Boise state at the time. And he offered me my first coaching job. And it was so great. You know, what Chuck said was right on because I, uh, I learned a lot about what it was to be a coach uh, at that particular time. And uh, there was a, a huge learning curve. And then uh, fought my way. I, I coached nine years 
at the college level uh, at three different universities and, you know, many schemes uh, before I got in the NFL. And then Bobby Ross, who was the head coach in Detroit, uh, Barry Sanders was there. Uh, he, uh, he offered me uh, a job as, as his quarterback coach in uh, 1998. Uh, and that was kind of my, uh, my first full-time uh, NFL coaching job. And I'll tell you what, uh, I realized even at that time that there were a lot of gaps that I had uh, from playing at, a, at the college that I played at. And then uh, I learned a lot from Jerry, but there was still so much more to learn. I mean, it was, it was amazing. The learning curve was, was incredible from, from being a player to a coach. And uh, I had some gaps in my learning. And so I, I filled those, and then I tried to take it even further, you know, and try to be that same kind of coach as I was player and uh, really enjoy, you know, I enjoyed uh, every single moment of being a, uh, from being a player and being a coach. I, I enjoyed it both. Playing is better. Uh, as you might, I, mean, I think you might even feel the same way. Playing is a lot better because the intensity. But the next best thing is being, uh, being a coach. Coaching guys like Matt Hasselbeck, uh, Trent Dilfer, uh, uh, you know, there's just so many different players that, uh, you know, I've been involved with. Uh, it's, it's pretty fun, pretty amazing, a privilege really. Yeah. You coached the Boise state, uh, Utah state, uh, Minnesota. And, uh, like you said, 98 to 2000 with the lions. Um, the only thing I can think of in, in major league baseball is the pitching coach. And you were a quarterback coach or an offensive coordinator, uh, Utah State, but quarterback coach, and I'm thinking, how would that, how would that correlate with a pitching coach? You know, got those guys in the bullpen working on their arm angle, their release point, maybe guys developing a new pitch. You see any similarities being the quarterback coach? Do you get into the nuances of actual throwing technique, or is it more the mental side of what we're thinking, or the routes, or I don't know? Take me inside that a little bit. Well, I, I've been pretty hands-on with, with QBs, and it's not so much that you try to change their throwing motion, but you talk about uh, being efficient. You know, uh, do, you, do you, you know, if a, if a quarterback is not explosive away from the center, let's say he's underneath the center, if he's not explosive away from the center, then uh, what, where, where he suffers is he rushes things when he's at the top when he's hitting that final step, he, he starts to rush things. But a lot of times QBs don't know that they would actually have more time if they were more efficient at the snap of the ball. So, you, you know, you, you just, as a coach, you start seeing these things and uh, start expressing those things to a quarterback and they figure it out. And so you, uh, in, in reality, I'm trying to help a QB become efficient. Don't waste motion. Why are you, why are you patting the ball? Uh, and sometimes a pat, if you're, if you don't have pressure, you can almost do anything you want. Uh, uh, I looked at Kurt, Kurt Cousins against the Seahawks a couple weeks ago 
he had a big smile on his face almost the whole game because he was not getting pressured. And, uh, and he, you know, he really did a great job against the Seahawks and completed a lot of balls, but, uh, and he, he was efficient doing it. Right. And so those are the things that, that I think as a coach, I'm trying to do, and I, it's probably the same way with a pitcher. What can he do to eliminate wasted motion? And uh, if a guy's got a really bad release, you know, the whole idea is to, uh, you, you can't really do much during the season because uh, everything you change during the season uh, slows a QB down or slows a player down. Every time you try to get him to think, uh, mechanically or whatever kind of slows, slows that, get that guy down. So, uh, a lot of the work that you do, like Matt Hasselbeck and I worked, uh, long hours in the off season to help him be efficient and be, be fast with decision making and, and, uh, efficient with his throws. Um, and so, uh, he became, you know, he became an all pro. Uh, himself and worked himself into it. He became efficient, but he listened and he understood what, what I was trying to say. And the danger is, uh, as a coach is to say too, is to say too much, right? Um, I don't know how it is with pitching coaches, but, um, you, 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 I, I, I try to get into that QB's mind to help him want to, want to change, make a, make a little adjustment and uh, and then when he makes those adjustments, he doesn't even think about them anymore. He just, that's just the way he plays. Uh, that might be the same way with the pitcher, but there's a lot of work that is done in the off season so that during the season, you're just getting ready for games, you know, to not slow your, your guy down. Uh, can pitchers make changes in, in mid season? Well, I, you know, Jim, I don't like to talk to pitchers because I really don't like them. They're the enemy. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but a pitching coach, I was just thinking from a mechanical standpoint because you're yeah. throwing. So I, w- I would never deal with the pitching coach or the or the pitchers themselves. So mine was the hitting coach. And, yeah, we would talk. Some some hitting coaches I had were were great at the mechanical side of my swing. Some were great on the mental side and the thought process and the preparation. Yeah. So I think each individual is different. And like you said, you 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 worked with Matt Hasselbeck and you had a great rapport with him. Um, and, and that's something – I knew this. When I found a hitting coach that could really help me, not only uh, big picture-wise – but but in the moment, uh, on the on the fly, he could say something. Maybe that would lodge a thought in my in my mind that gave me a chance that day. Uh, those are the guys that were gold to me, and I'd hold on to them. And you know, and yeah. and yeah. <laughs> anytime I would, I'd, I'd make a phone call and say, "Hey, I'm I'm one for my last twelve, and and I have no clue." Well, Brett, remember what you did three weeks ago when you were in Texas yeah. and you made that adjustment, and you, wow, you know, and it was just something little like that. There's certain people in our professional lives, and I'm sure you went through it uh, not only on the coaching side, but as the player side, that there are certain relationships you have with people that, wow, he really helped me. He always had the right thing to say. He could say something that would make me get back into the zone, you know, and we hold on to those guys, especially in our professional lives. Um, 
in 2001 to 2007, you had a brief stint. You had a stint with the Seahawks in '97, but coming back home uh, and working with Hasselbeck, and I, I got a chance to work with the Oakland A's for a couple of years as a special assistant, and I, I got a lot of. Uh, I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty cool, and and it was not that I needed any fanfare. I didn't need any credit. I didn't need any headlines. But I worked with the minor league guys. And just, you know, if I can just help them a little bit and give them a little bit of what I learned throughout my career, that was very satisfying and in a cool way to see those guys rise and get to the big leagues and have success and just look at them and tell them, hey, I'm proud of you. All that work you did in the minor leagues paid off. Going from a, a quarterback to now the quarterback coach, and you said Matt Hasselbeck, he took off. He became an all-pro. He became a pro bowler. Uh, was there some some real satisfaction for you on that side of the ledger, knowing that even if even if it was a little part, you you were a part of that and seeing him grow as a player? Yeah, no question. Uh, when Matt first came to Seattle, you know, we had, we had uh, traded for him. And, and think about it. I was working with a, a tremendous football coach uh, in Mike Holmgren, and, uh, you know, he had, he had already gone to the Super Bowl in Green Bay, and he was trying to get there uh, with Seattle. And when I came in, uh, we had traded for Matt Hasselbeck, who backed up Brett Favre. Well, Matt uh, thought he was, you know, he thought he was another Brett Favre, right? I mean, he was just doing all kinds of stuff. And Brett, Brett could do a lot of things. Brett's a tremendous uh, quarterback, Hall of Famer himself. And Matt wanted to fashion himself after him. I don't think, you know, he would say that, but that's kind of what it was. And I kept saying, uh, Matt, listen, what, what needs to happen here is you've got to just discipline yourself. Just a little discipline is going to go a long way. And he just had a hard time with it. But, you know, Matt actually lost his, his starting role. Uh, after uh, very, very soon, uh, he lost his starting position to Trent Dilfer and Trent Dilfer was one tough hombre. I mean, he was really, he was different than Matt because Matt could move around, right? Matt could scramble. He could throw on the run. Uh, he got out of the pocket. He made uh, quick decisions and, and Trent made quick decisions, but he was a pocket guy and he was tough in the, he could stand really, uh, he could stand in that, in that rush and things could be going on right next to him, and he could concentrate down the field. Well, he lost his position to Trent, and Trent started. And I won't go into it, but Trent got injured, uh, uh, I don't know, four, about three or four games into, into him starting. He, he tore his Achilles tendon. And I'll never forget Matt Hasselbeck walking into my office and said, okay, he said, uh, I'm going to do it your way. I won't ask you why uh, to to be uh, you know to be a uh, a pill. I will. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to do everything you ask me to do. And uh, and I did. I, I just said, okay, listen. What I'm going to ask you to do is just have a little more discipline. And I we we just worked together so well from then on. Uh, he wasn't fighting me anymore. And all he did was play, like I said, with just more discipline. He, he was explosive away from the center. 
uh, he was he was a good he understood the rhythm. You know, the football is all about rhythm and timing, and uh, he was wasting all kinds of time doing you know doing what he thought was really cool instead of what was really efficient. And he became a really efficient QB. And yeah, so helping influence that, yeah, there's nothing better uh, to help a, a guy uh, just see see some of his potential. And I got I get the benefit because he really he's a he's a great athlete, and I got the benefit just by being around him, being around Trent, being around Joe Flacco, and uh, you know other other QBs that uh, you know really know how to perform. Uh, 2007 is your last year, and in 2010, uh, you were the quarterback coach of the Ravens and, and then with the Chiefs. But in 2008, you get your first shot at the head coach. We, we had Shanahan on recently, and he said that wasn't the easiest place. But uh, you're the head coach for the, for the Redskins. Um, tell me the differences you saw from being a quarterback coach, being an offensive coordinator. Uh, now, all of a sudden – you're the head guy. And, uh, you know, I probably correlate that in the, in the major league world from being the manager and then being the, being the bench coach, you know, you're not the face of the organization, but you're doing a lot of the, the work behind the scenes. How was that for you? Uh, your first shot of being a, being an NFL head coach. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, it was exciting. And, uh, you know, I feel like I should still be there, but, uh, but as a head coach, uh, you're trying to create the vision and the direction of your team, uh, trying to develop uh, uh, enough great players so that you can win a championship. And you got to have you got to have a good core uh, of players to to win a championship. And you can't get injured, and uh, and you have to have those players catch what you're trying to accomplish, catch the vision of it, and then. You know, being a player and being a coach, an assistant coach, uh, made it uh, real for me because I, I tried to have no, you know, cycle babble and no, uh, no. Um, I tried to relate to the players uh, because I had been one. I tried to re- re- relate to the as a coach and a player because I, you know, I was one, and so uh, I think with all the with that kind of formula. You got to create um, uh, a vision for direction for the team, and then speak with clarity and and be able to not bend when adversity strikes. And that's the you know that's probably the hardest thing is you got to make changes, you got to adjust, right? But uh, your your vision or your plan can't change just because adversity. Uh, strikes, and I think that's the difference about being the head coach than being the assistant. Because I didn't have to say anything as an assistant coach to the public, but as a head coach, you're you're on call to many different facets: the players, which is the most important, the media, the owner, and uh, you know all kinds of. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, and the fan, everybody wants to know why, uh, it's great when you win, 
but everybody wants to know why when you lose. And uh, uh, that, that's, uh, as you well know, you know, to try to explain those things. If, if you're ever a manager, uh, it's kind of on you. And uh, you got to be steady. You got to remain steady because the players are listening and watching. And the coaches, your assistants, are listening and watching. And then the owner, uh, you're accountable to uh, as a as a head football coach in the National Football League to uh, have you know have the answers and understand what you know what you're trying to accomplish as you go on. It, it's uh, uh, I felt like I was right in uh, you know I was right in the elements of that and really enjoying it. Uh, but we had a ways to go, and then you know I was released. 1991, uh, they elect you into the Ring of Honor for the Seahawks. You were the second in, inductee ever. Larger was the first. It seems fitting uh, with the line of discussion today and where you guys kind of go down, not only in, in, in football history, but uh, most definitely in Seattle, uh, Seahawk football history. How was that day for you? Oh, it was tremendous what an honor to to be selected to be up on you had your name put up on that uh, on a uh, stadium wall um and uh, and be one of the you know key ingredients to uh the, at least the beginning of a tradition and a seattle uh, you know seattle football so uh yeah it, it's it's an honor and i still think it's a privilege i don't try to take it for granted i'm not trying to um, walk around strutting around thinking that I'm all that. Um, so, uh, it's pretty cool. In fact, uh, you know, there's, there's 12 names up there now and, uh, there's going to be more, uh, two more coming in this year. And Matt Hasselbeck's one of them. And Mike Holmgren is the other. So, uh, you know, and so there, you know, that's kind of my era, uh, as a coach. And then have, being up there with Dave Brown, Steve Largent, Kenny Easley, Jacob Green, those guys who I played with, you know, that makes it even just doubly uh, enjoyable that I get to be a part of that group. Jim Zorn, uh, I want to say thank you for coming on the Boone Podcast. It's been an honor. And what we do each and every time on the Boone Podcast at the end is we bring Dan Levy in for a, for a uh, question from the fans. Dan? All right, fellas, how are you? Jim, this one comes from JW in Redmond, and he wants to know this question. I've always wondered how hard it was to play on old-school AstroTurf and how bad did it hurt to get tackled on that turf? <laughs> well, we got pounded. I played in... Uh, Nike Air Force One uh, on the turf. Uh, I learned I learned that that was probably the, my best shoe. And you know we didn't have a crown in the kingdom. It was flat, uh, partly because it was also uh, it was also Brett Boone's field. I don't know. Did you play in the kingdom, Brett? I did my rookie year. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you understood it was flat, but yeah, it was it was really hard uh, ground to to fall on to get tackled on. And I'll tell you what was even worse. That kingdom turf, you could get burned. And now with, with the, the way that uh, tur- uh, plastic grass or the, uh, you know, the turf fields today that are developed, you, didn't, you don't get burned as much. But 
you could really get rug burns. And I remember uh, Largent, you know, when he would die for balls, his arms would just be, the, the skin would just kind of peel off. And I had burns, you know, on my elbows and my knees and things like that from that. Well, when you go in to take a shower, um, you have to put, uh, this is like a little tip. You have to learn all this stuff. When you go in to take a shower after the game, you put Vaseline on your burns because the Vaseline then protects the burn from from stinging uh, <laughs> while you're taking a shower. It's unbelievable. And then you try to get that that burn healed before next week. And they have an ointment uh, to do that. But it, it was not only hard to hit, um, it was, uh, burn, it was, it was a burn fest and, uh, uh, you know, guys used to wear all kinds of sleeves and, and, uh, different kinds of big tape strips on their elbows and their, their legs so that they wouldn't get burnt, uh, as they skidded on that, that type of rug. Uh, astro trips come a long way since, uh, since I've played. Well, Jim Zorn, we love a good ointment, and we thank you for coming on this podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Dan, I appreciate appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Brett. That's going to do it for the podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director producer of the Moon Podcast. I'm also the voice. Executive PD would be Rich Herrera Digital. That's Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. And it better be a nice review. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.